<laughs> I can just imagine some uh, some medieval student raising his hand and just being like, <laughs> "Id erit in probatione," which would mean, "Will this be on the exam?" <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening, brother Aaron. Oh, my, are we a wizard today? Do, do, do wizards <laughs> call each other brother? Uh, I don't know, but you sounded kind of like a wizard. Anyway, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various wizards of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. Just kidding. It's basically anybody. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is always harder to do, but we always try anyway for some reason. So, George, what are we doing today? Today, we are going to tackle one of the giants of science. A man who was so next level that he entered myth and legend as a wizard and was named Bacon before Bacon was named Bacon. Uh, all right, wh whatever. We can get back to uh, whatever, whoever you're covering later. Uh, but I think we need some answers about the bacon. Was there really a time before bacon was bacon? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that there was. It wasn't until the uh, the 14th century, actually, that the word bacon was used to mean uh, the parts of a pig. It's from a proto-Germanic word, which means back, or for the uh, <laughs> the less polite company, but. Um, and it <laughs> refers to the cuts of meat on a pig, which are best for curing into bacon. So, what did people do before bacon was bacon? I really can't say, but I suspect that's probably why annoying people on the internet refer to it as the Dark Ages. I mean, almost certainly. <laughs> Seems reasonable to me. Anyway, what what were we do? Oh, oh, right, the podcast on pre-bacon bacon. And by pre-bacon bacon, I mean none other than Roger Bacon, monk, mad scientist, and predator of bacon. Uh... So, you're hosting when we cover a Catholic again? What, what is it with you? Look, it's not my fault that you sold out and got a job, which made <laughs> you too busy to research the Roger Baconator. Besides, I can't help that so much cool stuff happened back when Pastor Bob's Eighth Cubed Baptist Evangelical Free Holiness Bible Missionary Word Eternal Truth Congregational Christian <laughs> Community of Faith was just a twinkle in Satan's eye. Well, it looks like someone woke up on the wrong side of the altar this morning, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I was hoping for a little bit more uh, vicious comeback, but, you know, that'll have to work. We'll, we'll work with that. So, uh, I think it's time <laughs> to head down. What do you think? Did you know that the... Never mind. I think it's time to go down to the history lab and get this thing started. Four demonic aliens brought the SAT to man. <laughs> I can't fucking do it. Before demonic aliens brought the SAT to mankind, before starving podcasters had to tally up Patreon numbers on the torn flap of a cereal box to see if they can afford this month's pallet of ramen, and before manipulating algorithms to increase ad revenue on your Minecraft YouTube channel was the only way to make a living. One man did math, just because he thought it was cool.
You know, Aaron, one day you're going to have to actually explain the whole history lab thing and all the, the weird backstory stuff about this podcast to me. I don't think so. You could just, uh, could just go listen to it, you know? Yeah, that's going to be a no for me, dog. <laughs> Uh, well, screw you two. Um, are you actually going to ask a question, or do I need to think of one? Fine, fine, whatever. Um, let's see. Give me a minute. Uh, ah, here we go. Something pertinent and relevant. So if, apropos of nothing, you were going to completely redesign how candidates win a primary election in Iowa and get the nomination, what would they have to do to earn the title? Uh, uh, if I, um... Trial by combat, obviously. Uh, the, the strongest politician who kills the most other politicians wins gets to be the politician. If, you don't, if you're a politician and you haven't killed other politicians, you're not a politician. <laughs> um, and I guess I should ask you the same question. If you got to completely redesign how candidates win a primary election and get the nomination, what would they have to do to earn the title? Why are we talking about politics? Fuck. Um, let's see. Hmm. I mean, trial by <laughs> combat's pretty good. I was also thinking maybe some sort of arts and crafts tournament to see who can, like, make the best uh, drawing for their parents to put on their fridge or ashtray for their dad or something back before smoking <laughs> was politically incorrect. But yeah, let's see. We got, I'm sure there's something. Um, a food sorry. fight? No. Hmm. Sorry, I'm sorry. Smoking Barn raising. Barn raising. That's it. I want to see politicians raising a barn like the Amish. Like, roll up those shirt sleeves. Let's do it. Well, I I, I do like that answer. That is pretty good. But I was going to say, uh, wait, it's politically incorrect to smoke now? I think it has been since, like, the early 2000s, late 90s. Is that why the Joker always has a cigarette in his mouth throughout yeah. the entire... Okay. Yes. That's really stupid. <laughs> All right. So, uh, first, before we jump into this, we've got a couple of announcements, as we uh, typically do, Dale. Um, because we're making excuses and shit, or I'm making excuses. Okay, the point is, <clears throat> I got a job, it's full-time, and it is a hell of a lot of work. It's on my feet, eight hours a day, carrying heavy shit up and down the stairs. Uh, I come home, Aaron, you're and not I... supposed to refer to the patients that way. The patients? The what? I was making a joke about you having to carry people up and down the stairs like at a hospital, but now it just, it fell flat. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a good shot. But, uh, yeah, so I'm doing that now. It's great. I'm walking like 10 miles, 15 miles a day, which is insane because I've just been sitting around doing jobs for about, what, a few years now? Whatever. The point is, things are different. Things have changed. Um, so we've decided to, and also I'm on a, a sort of like an offset schedule by a day, so... My week ends on a Thursday and begins on a Sunday. So our Wednesday thing is like smack dab in the middle of my work week. I've got, uh, it's crazy. I don't need to make excuses. I don't need to explain myself to you people. You get it because all of you probably work. Uh, maybe. I don't know, actually. But anyway, so that point is things are slightly different. I would say do expect me to be a little bit, uh, I don't know what the word might be. A little distracted for the next few weeks or oh, so. Oh, they already expect that, Aaron. Yeah, thank thankfully they expect that. Um, but yeah, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be getting into the gear, you know, getting into the system, getting into gear, you know, working on all that stuff. So I hope you will bear with us. But despite, despite 
us taking some breaks here and there like normal fucking people with the show, uh, despite all of that, and despite us being worried that if we perhaps had to cancel a week or something like that, that the listeners would hate, hate us, well, you're gonna find that actually support is through the roof right now. People are sending money like crazy. It's like, we're getting so rich. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but I have a good, I have good news for everybody. Uh, Seamus, our, our dear friend, has donated $50 to the podcast with a request that we do a drunk episode, which we haven't done in a really, really long time. So, uh... There was no set amount. He just said, here's 50 bucks, do a drunk episode. And I was like, fine. And so we're going to do one of those uh, fairly soon. But I'm going to give chalk one up to uh, Seamus right now and raise my working man's beverage uh, in his name and take a drink. To you, Seamus. Now, <clears throat> back to business. Computer, please bring Wait, did up. You, did you actually give the, the announcement about what the new schedule was going to be? Did I? I don't think you did. Oh, I was just talking? Yeah. Uh, sorry. I was gonna say, uh, yeah, we're releasing on Mondays. Thank you. There we go. I did say that, though. Are you sure? Yeah, you're just being... You're I'm sorry, being I was in bitchy. a very intense staring contest <laughs> with a cornflake on the floor, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that just makes me miss James. That's the kind of shit he said all the time. James, I know you're listening. You can come back anytime. <laughs> and we you know still you can... love you. You can never really leave. <laughs> you can check out, but you could never leave. Uh, Q Hotel California and computer, please bring up Mr. Rogers Baconator. Wait. Yes, Roger Bacon or Baconator. <laughs> All right. Well, let us begin with the description as we have grown accustomed to. So let's do it. Physical description of the Baconator. Oh, I really should have had dinner before we did this. Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm getting hungry myself. But there is no time for that. We have work to do. So the, uh, the vicious cycle of retribution continues. So I am once again going to make Aaron describe this image I have put in front of him. Go for it. Uh, okay. So, oh boy, this is an interesting looking dude. He looks like a wizard. Uh, he looks like a wizard, but he looks almost exactly like if Plato were... Or is it Plato? Socrates. I he mean, looks those, like Socrates. Those are both people. I don't know which one you were referring to. No, no, I was thinking of the painting of Socrates, the one where he's dying. You know that famous one? Oh, it's yes, on with, the, with the hemlock. Yes, with the hemlock. After democracy murders him. Yes, that's exactly what this man looks like. He's got a big, bushy beard, and uh, he looks like he's, like, blowing a kiss with his lips there. Uh, his eyes kind of... Does he, though? He really does. I don't. If you don't see it, you might be blind. He looks like he's... See, to like, me, he looks like he's just sort of scrunching up his face as he studies... It looks like a book on astronomy. He is absolutely doing duck lips. You can't convince me otherwise. Anyway, now, we shall continue. He has one... He appears to be mostly bald, but he has one little tuft of hair sticking out there in the center uh, of his wizard hood, which is, of course, his wizard's robe, which is draped over him like... I don't know, molten chocolate or something like that out of Willy Wonka. He's got a book, um, and it's got a moon and a sun in it, and both of them have faces, and it says, what does it say? Tract de alchemy. Oh, it's a book of alchemy. Okay. It's a book of alchemy. I wonder what those little lines are underneath. Those look like waveform. Um, anyway, so 
That's about. Oh, his hands uh, look like a package of sausages. That's too bad. They do look kind of meaty, don't they? Yeah. Oh, and one more thing. I can't tell, like, what's going on with his eyes, but it looks like he's got some. He's got some peepers there. <laughs> I think he's just concentrating, Aaron. I know that's something you would know nothing about, but try to oh, put don't, yourself don't, in his robe. Stop being a jerk. I don't know <laughs> what this guy's about. I can make fun of his appearance. It's part of the fun. Oh, also, one last thing. This uh, this photo you've put in, which is not a photo. It's a it's a it's a woodcut or whatever. Uh, it's labeled Roger Bacon, an English man. <laughs> It's always the log S's with you. You just refuse <laughs> to read it's, them. It's on purpose. An English man. <laughs> Maybe they used to be pronounced F. You don't know. Well, you probably do. <laughs> okay, so uh, all that be all that aside, I hope you all got a very good picture in your head of what this wizard looked like. And I think it's time for me to sit back, uh, suck on my beer, and let... Um, Why did you have to use a verb like that? What? suck. It just makes it weird. You're making it weird by pointing it out. Jesus Christ. Uh, okay. I'm gonna sit back and sip my beverage. See, that's what a normal person would say. <laughs> but you're going... You, if you haven't figured out that I'm abnormal by now. Well, I don't um, even I don't even know who you are, so... That's true. You don't. I'm just a stranger on the internet. <laughs> anyway, care to take it away? Yes. Yes, indeed. Alright, so... Let us start at the very beginning. Well, we would start there, but unfortunately, the beginning isn't exactly clear in terms of what year it is. I can tell you it's almost certainly between 1210 and 1220, but there's really no way to get closer than that for reasons we will talk about soon. So bear with me and just remember, beginning of the 13th century, sometime. Roger. Bacon. (laughs) <laughs> oh, 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 I see where we're going with that. Okay, good. So, <laughs> we start our story sometime around 1220 in the county of Somerset in the southwest of England. Disgusting. Have you been there? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's just No, no, I'm, I've, no, I was actually asking because I know you've been to the Benighted Isle and I haven't, so. Uh, I don't think so. But I'm not sure. I hear it's nice. But, I mean, it's England. How good could it be? So, anyway, (laughs) Somerset is on the uh, the north side of that, um, Hmm. shall we say, member that kind of rudely sticks out into the sea on the left side of England, uh, across the watery bit from the south of Wales. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, the part that, yeah, just awkward, that is awkwardly erect there on the end. Um, Jesus Christ, what is it with you and dicks tonight? (laughs) I'm not the one who was using the verb (laughs) suck in a weird way. That wasn't weird. It's Jesus. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> I'm cutting this out. So, uh, Somerset was a pretty relaxed rural part of England with rolling hills, coastal plains, and broad, empty moors. It was a generally a pretty peaceful agricultural area, but, and this has nothing to do with the story, but is honestly probably more important than the story, Somerset is where the town of Cheddar is located, and that is where cheddar cheese came from, so it is basically the most important place on Earth. Wow. That's, uh, that's wonderful. (laughs) Sorry, I get excited about... Well, I was gonna say I get excited about things, but no, it's mostly about cheese, so (laughs) ignore that. Anyway, so Somerset was also, at this particular time, enjoying a fair share of peace and prosperity 
after some pretty hard times, which we'll talk about in a second. Because it was right around this time when Roger Bacon is born that a certain King John of England had finally kicked the bucket. And this was the John that most of us probably know as Prince John from the tale of Robin Hood. And while he probably wasn't actually a comical villain, like the character, the real-life King John wasn't exactly a great ruler either. Was he a tiger or a lion with a crown and that kept falling off and he was always sucking his thumb? Unfortunately, the, the, the sources are vague about which type of big cat he was, so, I mean, <laughs> really, there's no way to know for sure. Um, yeah. Great movie, though. Yeah. Love that animated movie. That's one of the best. Anyway, yeah. so... Good old John, um, as I said, not a great king. Within a few years of his reign, beginning in 1199, John had succeeded in losing Normandy, which was the coastal region of France where his own ancestors had lived for centuries after they stopped being Vikings and before they conquered England under William the Conqueror in 1066, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Aaron. Oh, yes, of course. Of yeah, course. The, the Normans, i.e. the people who then conquered England, were literal Vikings who, several centuries earlier, uh, the King of France had been like, I will literally give you this whole area if you just fuck off. And so the Vikings, <laughs> a big uh, Viking king and his people settled down on this big area and eventually became the Normans. Oh. Norman literally just comes from North Man, because they're Man. You know, the Norse. I thought Norman was just a guy who worked at Burger King, but honestly... Shows you what I know. <laughs> anyway. That was a mm. good one. Come on. <laughs> I mean, it, it was low-hanging. <laughs> so that's uh so John, not great, loses the ancestral homeland, which is kind of a kind of a non-starter. But anyway, so the French kings hadn't exactly loved the situation of their rivals, the English kings, having their own separate little mini kingdom within France, and had been working to push the Norman English rulers out of Normandy for a long time, and they finally succeed with John. And John, of course, tried to get it back, but all he really did was spend huge amounts of money on the attempt, which required him to raise taxes again and again to fund the effort. So we're already seeing kind of a not great king thing going on, because raising taxes very rarely makes you popular. But it got worse, because John, good old Prince John, also tried playing hardball with the Pope. He hoped to sort of win back some dignity and appear to be a real tough guy leader by confronting the Pope. So when the most important bishopric, that is, you know, a seat of a bishop in England, which is, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when that seat was vacant, John tried to force in one of his close supporters as the next bishop, bypassing the clergy who were supposed to elect the next bishop and hoping that he could intimidate the Pope into rubber stamping his choice as bishop. He thought, yeah, the people will love me if I show I can stand up to the Pope. <laughs> Unfortunately for King John, he wasn't messing with your average Pope. He was messing with Innocent III, who was pretty much the CEO of iron-willed medieval popes and didn't take shit from anyone. <laughs> and so Innocent tells John's candidate to GTFO and appoints his own preferred candidate, a dude named Stephen Langton. So John, I don't see what this has to do with Baconators yet, but I'm it, being patient. After you wasted all that time on that rambling earlier, screw you, oh, Aaron. Oh anyway. my god. It is... Hey, hey. Hey. Easy now, co-host. Hey. Hey. Anyway, <laughs> so John thinks he can throw his weight around, and he bans Stephen Langton from entering England and confiscates the property of people who support him, 
and ends up getting the whole of England put under interdict, which is basically a thing the Pope can do that says until whatever is going on is sorted out, the church is pretty much closed. Huh. So this is usually done when a king is sort of trying to hijack the church in his country and, you know, more or less turn it into part of his political apparatus, and it just sort of shuts it down. And the essential things like baptism and stuff still happens, but for the most part, the churches are shut. Shut it down. Um, shut it down. Question. Yes. Question. So, um, interdict, that's got a capital I, I would like to point out. Would you mind explaining that a little bit more? Like, where else was it used? Oh, I mean, if you go through the history of the, the church in the Middle Ages, it's it happens a number of times, and that's just what it's called, an interdict. Okay, now you're, yeah. you're starting to revive my church history, no, um knowledge <laughs> that I got in high school, but... Yep. Interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of just like the Pope puts a moratorium on the church in a country until some situation is resolved. And as I said, it's often when some ruler is trying to interfere with the running of the church. Gotcha. All right. Yep. And so anyway, so people, of course, don't really like it when their king's power play ends up with them losing their church community and having higher taxes. So John was getting very unpopular, and in addition, the Pope excommunicated John himself and made it pretty clear that all it would take is a text from him for the French to declare war on England and invade. Ooh. As I said, Innocent III play does not take, take shit. He plays hardball. Interesting name for a man who plays hardball. Mm. Mm. Anyway, eventually, uh, John's little gambit finally broke and he had to throw in the towel, and so in 1213... He lets Bishop Langton into England after, I think, seven years, and he ended up in such a precarious position, John did, where he's, like, barely holding on to the kingdom and is afraid he's going to be murdered by his own people, that he ends up officially surrendering the kingdom of England to Pope Innocent III, who then grants it back to him as a gift. Wow. Yeah, so John got his ass handed to him in terms of global politics. And then he had it handed back to him. Yep. <laughs> But part of that involved John had to then pay an annual tribute to the Pope just to remind him who wore the robes in the church. Well, I mean, you gotta pay for your sins, right? I mean, Yeah, so basically John got absolutely wrecked by the Pope when he tried to play hardball. <laughs> That's what you get, and then you get a movie years later that makes you look like a dumbass lion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I liked the lion. He can't grow a mane, it's hilarious. Wait, he wasn't a lion, he was a... Now, wasn't he? I think he was a lion. Yeah, he was. He was. Anyway, yeah. that's neither here nor there. So, fun fact that it doesn't have anything to do with the story, but which this is for Aaron since he's Protestant. Um, Bishop Langton, <laughs> that guy this whole dispute was about, is actually the man who mapped out the system of chapter divisions in the Bible that we still use today. So this may come as a surprise, but Jesus didn't actually include those back when he wrote the Bible in English. <laughs> who wrote the Bible? Jesus. What was that movie? Was that uh, World's End? Have you ever seen that movie? Yes. <laughs> Nobody reads the... I can't remember what he said. It's something like... It was... Of course we know who wrote it. It was written by Jesus. <laughs> something like that. It's really funny how offhand it is. All right, carry on. Sorry. So anyway, that's just a sort of a fun fact that everyone can relate to, because I presume at least most people have at least seen a Bible and know there's chapters in it. So that's where these chapters come from. <laughs> 
So with John basically having screwed over his whole kingdom and continually raising taxes to pay for his mistakes, eventually the barons of England, so that's the most powerful nobles of the country, rebelled in 1215 and forced John to sign a document called the Magna Carta, i.e. the Great Charter, which was actually a sort of forerunner to modern constitutions since it laid out the rights, duties, privileges, etc. of both the king and the nobles and other people in society. So it was actually sort of the first constitution in the way we think about it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Hmm. But of course, despite having signed this, John didn't actually stop acting like John, and so the barons continued the rebellion, and John died of dysentery in 1216 during a war he was badly losing against both the barons and against the French who the barons had invited to come kick John's ass with them. Well... <laughs> Jolly the, cooperation. I was going to say, didn't another guy who was a bastard on the show, like, last week die of dysentery after... I can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I don't remember. I think Dysentery gets the right people. It, it gets a lot of people. It gets yeah, a lot that, of people. That's anyway, true. Oh, God. so, with, uh, with King John dead, things actually got straightened out amazingly fast at first. Uh, the new king, Henry III was just a little kid. So England was managed by a council of regents, including a representative from the Pope and people from the barons and relatives, and they actually did a really good job of settling everything. They promoted the Magna Carta. They actually said, okay, we're actually going to do this. We're going to put all these things into effect that John signed, even though he ignored it. And so that pretty much ended the rebellion, since now that these, you know, the royal government was doing what it was supposed to do, the barons had no reason to be rebelling anymore. And the French people went home to do whatever it is French people do at home. Ugh, only God knows, and he is not happy. <laughs> and he's not telling us. Thank Jesus. <laughs> and so that's, uh, that's around the time that Roger the Baconator was born. Mm. Right in this period where things are finally sort of going all right after a period of a lot of turmoil. And very little is known about his family, but we'll work with what we have. So we know they are well off. Um, they're landowners. They've got they've got some money. You know, they're not like they're not the Jeff Bezos of the 13th century, but you know, they they're well off. Sure. Um, they're Normans. Um, so they are part of the you know Viking into French Normans into English thing that was going on. And they have a farm, or maybe many farms, in the country, or in the county of Somerset that we talked about. Gotcha. And Somerset was very, very prosperous in this peaceful period following John's death, because it, had, it hadn't really been super involved in the Civil War happening, so it didn't get a lot of stuff destroyed. And as an agricultural um, area, it was thriving in sort of the peaceful prosperity that followed. And unfortunately, we can't really say much else about um about Roger's family because there is no other information. Well what the, more do you need? It's it's just this beautiful Norman family in the countryside. That's, yep. And really the, the only reason we know they were Norman is actually because of the Baconator's own name, which is Roger. Uh, um do you have any idea where the name Roger comes from? I thought it came from Mr. Rogers. Close. Close. <laughs> so it actually is the Viking slash Skyrim name, Hrothgar. Really? Yeah, and so remember, the Vikings settle in Normandy, and over time, you know, they're speaking French, they're no longer speaking Old Norse, and so things like the Hr 
of a Scandinavian language becomes the softer R of French, and the G becomes a J, so Hrothgar over several centuries becomes Hrothgar. Oh, I prefer Rothgar. <laughs> yeah, I know. Mr. Hrothgar's neighborhood. <laughs> so I thought that was a fun fact, because I never knew the name Roger. I never knew anything about it, and it Roger seems like a very different kind of name than Hrothgar in terms of the type of person it puts in my mind. It's true, but what kind of what kind of person comes to your head where comes into your mind when you think of the word bacon? <laughs> um do you know where bacon came from? No. Okay. Darn it. As I said, it, it exists as a name before it exists as the term for that particular type of cured pork. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so that's how we know they're Norman, because he has a Norman name. And so Roger was the younger son of the family, which meant that he wasn't the one who would be intended to inherit the farm, since the Normans and the English didn't do the whole splitting thing we saw with the Franks. Remember that, where everything gets split up between yeah. the sons? And so even if it's a whole kingdom, it's like, all right, the kingdom's now in five pieces. So yeah, yep. Normans didn't do that, which honestly seems kind of smart to me to not do that. Wise play. So he's not going to be the one who's intended to inherit, you know, the estates, the farms, and all that. And so he's not going to have to take over the operations, so he's probably a little bit less involved in learning the ins and outs of running a local estate, and more involved with learning other things. Because how it usually worked is that younger sons of a landowning family, since they're not going to inherit the farm, they tend to enter professions like being soldiers, priests, scholars, things like that. Things that require, you know, either a decent amount of investment in equipment or education. Gotcha. Because since they come from, you know, wealthy families, they can get that to invest, but they're not the ones actually going to be getting the means of that wealth when their parents die. I find that so interesting. Huh. Yep. So Roger was probably educated in a broader range of topics than an older sibling would have been. He's probably taught basic arithmetic and Latin, most likely by a local priest, since that those are often the most educated people in a town and often, you know, did what what education there was at the very at the very local level. Uh -huh. And he would have been quite young when he when he learned Latin. We do That's know amazing. I know, isn't it? Yep. An ideal world. <laughs> We do, know, world. we do know that Roger's father did have a very high regard uh, for learning because we know that at least two of his sons did become academics. So Roger and then some other brother, I don't think whose, whose name I don't think we know. And we know that Bacon Sr. Uh, was prepared to support them financially. Why are you laughing? Senor Bacon. <laughs> oh, Senor Bacon. <laughs> Sorry, Monsieur Bacon. <laughs> Senor Bacon. <laughs> So, it's nice that, uh, yeah, Roger had the support of his family for pursuing education, and his parents were more than just supportive in, you know, the emotional sense they were willing to pay, which is important as well. Yes. Yep. Because in, uh, in this period of relative prosperity that I was talking about after the whole King John debacle, lots and lots of new schools were appearing around England because the population was rising life expectancy was rising, and more complex systems of finance and administration were being implemented. And so this creates a huge demand 
for priests, lawyers, scribes, and scholars to keep it all running. Because if you have higher population, you need more churches, you need more priests. You know, if right. you have more complex things, you you need scribes and lawyers to run it all. So there's actually a huge demand for education right now in England. And no, not right now. I mean, you know, back in the 13th century. <laughs> yeah, not, not now. but <laughs> Definitely not now. Um, <laughs> and so the if you're planning on going down this route, the only real international center of education in England at that time was the University of Oxford. Oh, quite. Quite. Which had been <laughs> founded uh, back in 1096, so that is an old-ass college. Jesus. Like, that's literally almost a thousand years old. 1096. Wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Cambridge, on the other hand, which is the other of the, what the British call the ancient universities, was only founded in 1209, so only like 10 years before our period here. So it hasn't yet, you know, gotten the uh, the rep, so to speak, because, you know, who who's going to go to a 10-year-old college? Right. It's like, <laughs> mm, if this is such a great place, why wasn't it founded earlier? <laughs> anyway, um, so Oxford is really the place you go in England if you're planning on going down this this academic route. And, sure enough, Roger is planning on going to Oxford. And fortunately, as we talked about, Roger's father was willing to financially support his son's education. Good job, Senor Bacon. And so... <laughs> Bacon! <laughs> Bacon. Monsieur Bacon. So at uh, at age 13, which, believe it or not, is the normal age to go to university at that time, uh, young Roger Bacon entered the university. Can you, can you imagine that? 13? 13. Ah, uh, jeez. Not today. Holy now, shit. I was going to say, yeah, imagine what would happen if we'd gone to college at age 13. I would have probably turned out better, honestly. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Or just would have all been so overwhelming and would have, like gone to live in a cave somewhere well that too i mean that's basically what i do right then again now, that's so. maybe what you meant by turned out better so i, I don't know yeah, um anyway lived in a cave yeah so this is where the the problematic dating thing comes in about when these years actually are because our only clue to actually <laughs> establishing the beginning of when roger is born is a reference in a book he wrote much later which we do know the date of 12 set 1267 and in that book, Roger refers to it having been 40 years that he spent in study at that point. Oh, he is a wizard. The problem is that that 40 years of study could be referring to his entrance into the university, or it could be to when he first learned to write, or it could be to some other milestone, and we really don't know. So the most commonly accepted version is that it's his entrance to Oxford that was the 40-year beginning and so that would then be in 1227, since we know the book was written in 1267, and thus he would have been born in 1214, uh, since that would have made him 13, which was the normal age to go to Oxford. But this is all conjectural, as I said. We just don't know, because all we can work from is that reference. Gotcha. But 1214 seems like a reasonable answer, so that's what we're running with. And so in 1227, Roger sets out for Oxford, and this would have been almost 100 miles by wagon. And, you know, he's a, he's 13 years old. He's probably never been, never been anywhere near this far away from home. And I can imagine it being really overwhelming. Like, imagine if you're 13 and your parents just, all right, here's the wagon. Go to college now. 
Oh, it would be such an adventure, though. Like, your whole life you've just been living in this beautiful little farming community, and then suddenly it's like, now you're going to go far away to the legendary school of Oxford, where you will learn the secrets of the universe. It's like, that'd be like getting into Hogwarts back then. <laughs> it's No, no, that's true. That's true. Um, and it's there's no way to be sure what route he took, but based on the roads that were, because we know we can we know where the roads were since they're basically where the roads still are because roads don't tend to move. But um, it's very likely that he actually might have gone right by Stonehenge, which is kind of cool to picture. You know, eight hundred oh. years ago, Stonehenge already being this ancient thing, and he's just passing it on his way to university. Oh, this is this has montage written all <laughs> over it. <laughs> I know, right? We're gonna need the camera for the camera drone to get some of the drone footage of him going by Stonehenge on the wagon. I would love to make a movie about Roger Bacon going to college. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? So, anyway, he goes to Oxford, and it's gotta be some huge, huge culture shock because it's bigger and busier than any town you know Roger had ever seen. Because he probably has only ever seen the very, very local towns right around him in Somerset. And Oxford is, by comparison, huge, and it's crazy because of the university. And yep. it just had to be so overwhelming, especially because the kid's only 13. Yeah, well, I mean, that's fascinating. It's so interesting to think about that, like, the culture shock that would come with that. Like, you've probably never seen that many people in one place ever. Yeah, no, that's, that's, probably that's a good point. You've probably never seen buildings that tall. Like, you know, it's... Well, I mean, you might have with the local church or whatever, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, all at once, all in one place. Man, that would be like entering a different world. Holy shit. Yeah, so it's just in sort of a size comparison in terms of how big we're talking about. So the the sort of city in Somerset where he's from, Ilchester, they have one market. Oxford has four different markets all at wow. the same time. So it's just, it's you know, it's on a bigger scale than any town he's ever seen. And it's also absolutely nuts. Um, these stately stone buildings of the university that we can go see now hadn't been built yet, and so the university didn't actually have a physical presence, a place. It's just spread out through the city with bits and pieces here and there, and students, merchants, townsfolk all mixed up. You know, the university is just renting, you know, a room here, a room there. Um there's no actual physical place that contains it, so it's just spread through the town. Wow. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. Um, the only the sort of the the static points were that there were monasteries of a couple different religious orders that had sprung up around the university because monks and friars were often professors at the university. But outside of those monasteries, there was no sort of physical place around which the university you know orbited. So it's just hmm. in the town. Hold up. I have, I have, I'm, I'm interested in this. Um, so this, it's just like a, almost like a, like a network that makes it what it is. Like yeah, a, no, the university consists of the faculty that, uh, you know, this group, you know, that there's all these professors who collectively equal a university. And so students go there, but there isn't yet a physical place where they all meet so they you know they might rent there's rented buildings for lectures and stuff but there is no physical there's only the people only the fact that there are faculty make it a university that is so interesting wow mm -hmm. okay yeah so yeah as i said like lectures they're often held in rented buildings since there wasn't a campus and it's got to be just chaos for a young man from a rural country town 
because it's just, it's huge, it's bustling, it's crazy. And Oxford was also sometimes very, very violent. Um, and robbery weird. and murder were fairly common because it's a really busy hub of traffic. So, you know, you have travelers and merchants and you have people murdering people and it's, it's nuts. And also, fun times, you have frequent violent struggles between the students and the townsfolk, often involving back and forth revenge. So what, because as I said, the students are just all spread throughout the town. So like a student would commit some crime and then some townsfolk would like get revenge on him and then students would get revenge for that. And it just, it's literally, there were times when it was sort of war between the students and the townsfolk. So nothing's changed. <laughs> basically, um, basically, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Like there's this one, uh, this one point, which I think would have been, it actually does overlap with Roger at Oxford, so, but I hope he wasn't involved where some, it's unclear if this was intentional or not, but like a cook threw out a thing of, uh, of boiling water that they'd used, but it was thrown on a student at the door. It's unclear oh. if it was intentional or not, but then a nearby student just whips out his bow and shoots the cook. <laughs> and, and then there's just like a massive riot and... <laughs> like, it just, everything is always popping off. Also, I mean, bringing a bow to class, what a move. I was gonna say, like, that's a fucking power move, bring your longbow to algebra. <laughs> yeah, so it's, as I said, Oxford is just wild. That's oh, amazing. Now, hang on, hold up. You are, you are an academic at a university. My question is, how do you feel about this slightly different version of academia? I mean... Not that long ago, I was walking across campus and was almost run over by a massive mob of naked students at like 2 a.m. while I was walking back from the library. So honestly, the occasional violent riot and, you know, <laughs> bow and arrow murder sounds preferable. <laughs> I don't know how you stay sane, but that's that's all I... Oh, that's <laughs> a bold assumption. <laughs> anyway, so... um. As I said, this is wild, but in Bacon's time, we, we have to remember, a 13-year-old boy was considered an adult. So off you go, into the madness, have fun. <laughs> Great. Yeah, just just cut them loose. They'll, they'll find their way. <laughs> and so for the next decade, um, Roger was at Oxford getting the real deal education, which uh, starts with grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and then arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Fascinating. Yeah, you didn't, back in the day, you didn't have majors in college. You had to major in all those things, basically, at once. You relearned all those things, which are collectively called the arts. And then once you did that, then you might go on to a study of one of the big three, theology, law, or medicine. Those were sort of the advanced fields. Interesting. So, like, you were sort of the, the Renaissance man, you might say. You were schooled well in all of these sort of uh, classical arts, as you have said, and turn into a low-key wizard. Basically, yeah. Mm. Yep. And then, we're if you really want to go on, you go into an applied field, like theology, law, or medicine, where you can use your knowledge of the whole universe and the realm of of uh, the world of wizards for good. Or for it ill. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And that is the situation our young Baconator is in right now. He's at Oxford, uh, majoring in pretty much everything. So, as I said, the timeline, it's all messed up, but we're in the 1230s. We can pretty confidently say we're in the 1230s. 
And Roger's there, studying away, trying to avoid getting mugged or having boiling water thrown on him. <laughs> and you know, that actually does sound kind of like college now that I think about it. Yep. <laughs> Majoring in everything, avoiding getting mugged, occasional arrow battles. <laughs> That's so real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just replace the arrows with, uh, with Nerf guns, and that pretty much was college. For real, nothing has changed. Yep, and uh, believe me, I would love to talk more about these glorious college days, but unfortunately, it's a big blank. Um, oh. Roger never mentions anything about his college years. Um, mm. But I can imagine there were probably lots of all-night manuscript copying sessions with the boys. No doubt, <laughs> with the espresso machine running in the background, which back then the espresso machine was just a peasant with a... I don't know, they didn't have coffee, so I don't know how to finish the joke, but... <laughs> Yeah, what did they drink? If they couldn't drink coffee, what did they drink? Beer, mostly. Beer was very, <laughs> it was much lower alcohol content, and it was kind of the, like, all-round beverage of the Middle Ages. That's amazing. You just, there was never, there was basically never a time that it wasn't normal to drink beer. Wow. Yeah. And so, there is one thing that might be evidence about Bacon's college years, but it's iffy, if this is actually about him. But here mm. goes, since we literally have nothing else, might as well put it in. So a contemporary chronicler mentions an incident in 1233 at Oxford, and this this would be overlapping with Bacon's time. So apparently the king, uh, Henry, was having issues with two of his closest associates who and advisors who didn't like each other and were thus sort of squabbling with each other and creating instability by trying to sort of maneuver the king against the other one. And gotcha. the name of these two advisors were Peter de Roche and Peter de Rivol. Hmm. Why are they yeah. both named Peter? That's kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, I guess they liked it. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. They liked so Peter? This is what, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's going on. Um, and Henry is holding court at Oxford because kings in the Middle Ages traveled around a lot because one of their big roles was to hear cases, like of disputes, and arbitrate them, and so kings tended to travel around, and you'd set up in a town, and then everybody would bring the issues they've had, and the king would have to, you know, arbitrate them while he's there. Gotcha. So he's doing this thing, holding court at Oxford, and this advisor issue with the two Peters is happening, and while he's there, a well-known preacher and priest named Robert Bacon, who we have no idea if he's related to Roger Bacon, um... There's no reason to think he is or isn't other than that they have the same name. Um, gotcha. And Oxford, as I said, is the draw from all over England, so it would not be weird to have multiple people with the same last name at all. But in any case, there's this well-known priest, and he advises the king that as long as the two powerful advisors were trying to manipulate him against the other, the kingdom would be, you know, in potential trouble. Um, and of course, the king already knew that, but he still didn't know which one he should keep. And so this chronicler writes that a young scholar named Roger Bacon apparently then, like, cracked a joke. Um, and I, I, I have the, the words here. Would oh. you like to be the king or Roger Bacon? I think I'll be the king. Okay, so you're, the, you're in the middle then. So I'm Roger Bacon. Okay, are you going to say the bit between my lines? I mean, oh, the king replied? Yeah. Uh, we don't have to say that. We can just leave that out. All right. Fair enough. So, <clears throat> I'm Roger Bacon. My lord king, what is it that is most hurtful and fearful to those that sail across the sea? Those know it who have much experience of the waters. 
I really like that answer because the king is just like, I don't know. I guess there's <laughs> nobody who are on the sea. Ask what's, a what's sailor. <laughs> I'm just yeah. a king. What the fuck? <laughs> and so Roger Bacon responds, My lord, I will tell thee stones and rocks. Oh. Because um, stones and rocks would be in French, which was Henry's first language, actually, I believe. Pierre and Rocher. And so presumably... This meaning was taken to mean Peter de, de Roche because Pierre de Roche would be his name in French and stones and rocks would sound just like it if you said it. And there's really no way to know if this was our Roger Bacon, but as I said, the place and time do work out and he really would have to have seriously had a set to literally be a college student and tell a joke to the king who's trying to figure out a serious national issue. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's wizard power building right there. Yeah, no, so we it might have been him. There could have been another Roger Bacon, but somebody named Roger Bacon apparently had to had to be witty with like the pun on the name when the king's trying to figure out which advisor he should get rid of. <laughs> I wish I wish I had that uh that like big dick energy. You can, you can. <laughs> In any case, that's all we have for Roger's college years. Um is that maybe that was him, and we have nothing else. We can tell, based on, you know, the years, that he would have finished his bachelor studies and then his master's degree by around 1242. Good. And at that point, you get a, you have an option. So you finished your master's, you could either start teaching all those general subjects, you know, the, the rhetoric and the arithmetic and the logic and everything, to students as a Magister Artium, Master of the Arts, which is what MA actually stands for, since the a Magister is actually the Latin word for a teacher. So when you have a Master's, what that literally means is that you're now able to teach a subject. Interesting. Yep. And so he could now start teaching the general subjects, or he could go on to an advanced field like theology, law, or medicine, as we talked about. But to do that, you would need to spend another up to eight years to become a master of one of those subjects, and then up to another eight to become a doctor of one of those subjects. Jesus. So if you thought grad school was long these days, be thankful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So Roger was not interested in spending another 16 years doing theology, law, or medicine, and decided just to remain a magister artium, a teacher of the arts. And a lot of people did this. This was a pretty common thing, because then, as now, 16 years in grad school does not sound fun. <laughs> and uh, these people often ended up staying on at their universities, teaching and writing philosophical treatises for the rest of their lives, and then dying and only getting mentioned every couple of hundred years in the footnotes of someone's dissertation. But that wasn't going to be the case for Roger Bacon. <laughs> There's something funny about the way you said that, and I can't name it, but it's Thank magic. You. Thank you, Aaron. That means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, early in the 1240s, Bacon moves to the University of Paris to work there as a lecturer in the arts. And that's kind of the great thing about having Latin as an international language of education. You could go from a university in one place to teach in a completely different country and not have to worry about a language barrier. Because it really makes you, you think. You'd be lecturing in Latin, and so it just worked no matter where you were. That's uh, why they call it the university. <laughs> the good old days. 
Anyway, so what Bacon was there in Paris to teach was primarily philosophy, especially Aristotle, the 4th century BC Greek who had been Alexander the Great's tutor and who had written copious books about literally everything from botany to the nature of reality. Like wow. he wrote, like he has a book called On the Parts of Animals. <laughs> like he, he wrote about everything he could think of. That's amazing. And Bacon had really favored studying Aristotle while at Oxford. He was, he was an author he really liked. And that made him very welcome at the University of Paris. And we'll see why. In the f previous few decades to this, there had been a big issue with Aristotle around the University of Paris because a couple of theologians had sort of used elements of Aristotle's teachings to spin off their own sort of culty religious movements. And since they were very vocal about loving Aristotle, but they were also very obviously weird culty people, Aristotle's own work had become, you know, suspect. People were like, wait, is that what happens when you study Aristotle? If you start a cult? So the University of Paris had put a temporary ban on teaching Aristotle until after a committee, yes, universities have literally always been that way, until after a committee would go through and figure out if these people's weird heresy was directly tied to their studying of Aristotle, or if they just sort of appropriated some of Aristotle's methods and terminology. Mm. Yes? Um, it's just, it's just really too bad that that... I mean... Weird culty movements, man. You gotta deal with them. They happen. They happen. Yeah. Anyway, it all fizzled out after a number of years, um, and it became clear that Aristotle himself was actually fine, and so Aristotelian studies began again at Paris. Could you, but the, do you, could you explain to me, like, what these cults looked like exactly? Um, so they usually end up being either millenarian in some way, so... The world is ending, and you know, in a few years, and we have to do this thing right now. Um, mm. Or they're sometimes pantheist, like that rock is God, and uh -huh. that that lizard is also God. <laughs> um, yeah, because they basically they take in systems of inquiry and reasoning from philosophy, and then sort of try to apply it in weird ways, and sort of mix it with Christianity, and it often ends up being really, really weird stuff. Strange. Yeah. But anyway, so the problem was that even, you know, once Aristotle's fine again, the gap of a few decades there where they weren't doing Aristotle meant that pretty much all the people at the university were trained while Aristotle was still suspended. So they couldn't really teach Aristotle because they hadn't been trained in it. And so that's mm. how an Englishman like Roger Bacon would be in high demand to teach Aristotle because they don't have anyone there who's really able to do it. Right. Because this was only at the University of Paris, um, where the university decided, until we figure out what the deal is, we're not teaching Aristotle. Man, the French. The French, they just take stuff and they just run with it. Yeah. So anyway, um, Roger was actually far from the only Englishman there among students or faculty. There were tons of them. The university, which at that time was probably the largest group of students in the world, the University of Paris, was divided into four administrative units, three French and one English. And so the English people all sort of lived together and had their quarter of the university, which is nice. Um, yeah. And Roger was a part of that English quarter and lived and worked with many of his fellow countrymen. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. No, it's, it's nice. It's nice. And so as we talked about, Bacon was, you know, a muggy stare. He had a master's degree, and thus he was able to lecture on topics. But he would have been much closer um, to the students 
in sort of life and uh, status than our image of a professor. The, the, the magistry, the masters, were pretty close to the students, and so at Paris, as at other universities, when there was trouble or fighting or rioting, as there literally always is at universities, the masters were usually there with the undergrads, throwing chairs with the best of them. Nice. Yeah, and so, you know, at some point, Roger Bacon, you know, may have been involved in brawling. Impossible <laughs> to tell. And despite the fact that lectures started at 6 a.m. at the University of Paris, the English Quarter in particular was famous, or perhaps notorious, for how late they stayed up drinking and the amount of food they ate. Classic Englishman. <laughs> yep, so yeah, they're up all night eating and drinking and then gotta be at lecture at 6 a.m. And you thought an 8 a.m. was bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, and you and like, well, never mind. I was gonna say you have to walk there, but you kind of have to do that anyway. Yeah, that's universe. true. We do still have to walk there. But it was uphill both ways <laughs> back then. <laughs> yes. And so during uh, during his time at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Paris, Bacon lectured on many Aristotelian texts, especially the so-called Libri Naturales, the natural books, which included On the Soul, On Sense and the Sensible, Physics, Metaphysics, On Generation and Corruption, um, and some other books, but those were probably the Aristotelian works he was most focused on. And we actually have a... Um, manuscript containing students' notes taken on some of his lectures. Oh. Yeah, which is fun. Um, the form of these lectures would be what are called questiones, or questions, which involves the presentation of critical questions combined with explanatory comments. So like, it'll be a heading like, you know, whether such and such is directly related to such and such, and then you sort of provide the background and why the answer is what it is. That's how medieval lectures usually worked. They were always broken down into questions. That's badass. I mean, yep. it's it's more like uh <coughs> these days classes are more like here's what it here's what you need to know and believe this and here's this instead of just being like but what is the sun? <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine some uh some medieval student raising his hand and just being like <laughs> Id erit in probatione, which would mean, <laughs> will this be on the exam? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's what that's what the Baconator's up to at Paris. And uh, so these lectures represent Bacon's sort of earliest development of teaching on topics such as causality, motion, the nature of existence, the soul, substance, sort of the nature of truth. He's getting very very philosophical. Oh, my man. <laughs> yep, yep. And so during this time, the 1240s and 50s, Bacon composed a series of works on logical and grammatical matters dealing with syntactic and semantic issues because he became very, very concerned about language and the importance of clearly understanding how language works so that you can precisely use it so you can talk about things the right way. And so he wrote the Summa Grammatica, so yeah, the summary of grammar, the Summa de Sophismatibus et Distinctionibus, a summary <laughs> of sophisms and distinctions, oh. and the Summulae Dialectiques, the summary of dialects. So he's very he's very into words at this point and thinking philosophically about language and precision in language. Now you said summary of dialects, not dialectics. What is exactly oh sorry, I meant dialectics. I just. What what exactly would be the difference there? So dialects means like 
does he sound like he's from Alabama or Massachusetts? Whereas dialectic is the process of talk, literally talking through sort of the process of reaching truth by dialogue. Gotcha. Like Plato. Anyway, um, whereas dialect is, you know, does he sound like he's from Alabama? <laughs> so while at Paris, Bacon also got to know a man named Peter Peregrinus or Peter the Pilgrim, who was also a Magister Artium but who had devoted himself to rather different pursuits. He was less interested in developing systems of logic and philosophical structures, and more into what might be termed natural philosophy. He yes. actually wrote the first extant treatise describing the properties of magnets. <laughs> what the fuck are magnets? Yeah, uh, pe people how, in the 13th century knew. How do they work? Wasn't that a meme years ago about, like, you know, what's it was a, a meme. Yeah, it was a meme involving Mormons, and I don't remember how it went or okay. why it was a meme. That was way back. That was just, yeah, that was archaic. Yeah. But anyway, um, so first extant treatise about magnets, this guy, and his work is particularly important because it contains the earliest detailed discussion of freely pivoting compass needles, uh -oh. which are going to end up being really important later on because compasses. But he's one of the first people to really look at how that has to work. Gotcha. And so Bacon was very interested in this sort of science, because as we talked about, he was, prior to this, was very much in the sort of philosophy, structures of logic, discussion, and all that. And so he's very, very interested when he hears about this sort of natural science. And he later wrote about uh, about Peter the Pilgrim, this guy, this uh, this statement here, and I would like you to read it out, Aaron. Oh, but what what voice should I use? Oh, what voice do you think is appropriate for Roger the Baconator? Oh, for the Baconator? I mean, you did the, your little intellectual um, <laughs> questioning voice earlier for the students, so I I gotta pick But he is a little bit older now. Alright, so, <clears throat> this is from, uh, from Bacon. <clears throat> he gains knowledge of matters of nature, medicine, and alchemy through experiment, and all that is in the heaven and in the earth beneath. Moreover, he has considered the experience and the fortune-telling of the old witches and their spells and those of all magicians, and so too the illusions and wiles of all conjurers, and this so that nothing may escape him which ought to be known, and that he may perceive how far to reprove all that is false and magical. So what yeah, was so it's, it's interesting. So Bacon, this... Bacon talking about Peter, talking about how he didn't just sort of limit his study to the sort of normal academic subjects, but actually went to study like fortune telling and magic and stuff to see if there was anything actually real in it. And also so that he could disprove what was false. Ah. He didn't just say, oh, that's nonsense. He actually like would try to look at it and study it. Ah, I appreciate that. That's good. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's pretty good. It's, fair. it's pretty good. So yeah, so this is what Bacon thinks about Peter, who's a great influence on him. And Bacon eventually decided that he was also going to get in on the whole experimental natural philosophy game instead of the logical and semantic studies and lectures he had been engaged with. But that made Paris a bit of his problem, since his job there was to do that stuff. So if he was going to start doing something else, he was obviously going to need money. And where do people with graduate degrees go when they need money? The government. Close. Um, their parents. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and of course, since Bacon's family was in England, 
and Venmo was downloading an update in the 13th century, it was really hard to safely send money to another country, not to mention it took forever. Um, so Bacon decided to move back to England so he could be closer to the family piggy bank. <laughs> Baconator at it again. And uh, to add some perspective about why it's so important to have money, I want to talk a little bit about books. They are really freaking expensive in the Middle ah. Ages because of the massive, massive amount of labor that goes into creating them. Because for a large book, you might need an entire herd of sheep to donate their skin to make all the pages and hours upon hours, you know, because everything is hand copied out. And so we're talking just a single book costing, you know, in the range of hundreds of thousands of dollars equivalent. Jeez. Yeah, so books are really, really expensive. Um, and Bacon needs books because you can't really do a lot without books. So during the um, the 20 years during uh, which uh, he... Sorry, <laughs> you wanna, let me back you up. I just, I, yes, please cut that. <laughs> so I wanted to add a little um, reason about the books being so expensive that Bacon himself wrote in a later wor work. And he wrote... And Aaron, take it away, Roger Bacon. During the twenty years in which I have labored specially after the in the study of wisdom after abandoning the usual methods, I have spent more than two thousand pounds on secret books and various experiments and languages and instruments and mathematical tables. So that is a absolutely obscene amount of money. Two thousand pounds. That is the equivalent of paying the wages of about 50 unskilled laborers for a lifetime. Holy shit. A, a skilled craftsman, like a very skilled stonemason or something, might make, if he's very lucky, five pounds a year. Oh my god. Yeah, the, uh, there's one year that we actually have the exact amount of royal revenue in England, and around this time, it's not exactly this time, but somewhere around here, there was a year when the entire royal revenue of the king was 36,000 pounds. Jeez. So, yeah, Bacon is spending a lot of money on books and stuff. Jeez. Almost like a good piece of the entire governmental budget. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, this is over 20 years, but still, um, yeah. yeah, it's a huge amount of money. And so... He's going to need access to money, and so he's going to need to be near his family so he can, you know, show up for uh, for lunch every now and then and talk about his work so they'll keep writing the checks. Yep. Um, but he's now no longer at the University of Paris, and he's a little bit hard to track at this point because he's a private scholar, so he's not sort of tied to a place, and we don't really know where exactly he is. We know he's mostly in England, but... He seems to also travel around to get a hold of different books, especially books on optics and light, which had become the sort of the focal point of his interests. Good one. Thank you. I was afraid that was going to be too subtle. Uh, are you calling me stupid? <laughs> no, I no, represent no. that statement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at some point uh, during this time, he was also back living at Oxford for a few years. We're not sure exactly when, but we know that at Oxford, Bacon explored pretty much everything that was currently known about the workings of nature. I love he, this man. <laughs> yeah, he read um, pretty much all the surviving ancient texts he could find that described inventions, real or imagined, and inspired by what he'd read about, 
he began to speculate about new possibilities of things that could be created. And so we have a letter he wrote at this time um, called De Mirabili Potestate Artis et Natura on the Marvelous Power of Art and Nature. Ooh. And in this work, he sets out what, I mean, it looks it's basically a catalog of wonders mm. of amazing sounding things. And because of his constant concern to separate the realities of nature and the fictions of magic, because we talked about how important that was in his, uh, his admiration for Peter was that's what he did. He began by establishing a very clear context for these inventions he was describing. He said that these are marvels wrought through the agency of art and nature. In these, there is no magic whatsoever because as has been said, all magical power is inferior to these works and incompetent to achieve them. Hmm. Which is interesting that he's not saying magic doesn't exist, but that magic can't make as cool stuff as science can. Interesting. And that... Yeah, I hadn't thought about that until I just reading it right now. Hmm. Huh. I like this. Yeah. I like this a lot. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. So anyway, um, Bacon discusses the possibilities of flying machines automobiles, steam engines, as potential things that might be able to exist. He even comes up with the principle that a flying machine would have to have the same relationship to air that a boat has to water, which is, of course, sort of the, you know, the lighter-than-air technology. That's a fundamental part of aviation, and he figured out that that's how it would have to work, even though, of course, he had, was, you know, so, so far before any of that could be put into practice. Fascinating. Yep. He also left behind various discussions of potential flying and gliding devices um, and how he thinks they would have to work. None of them really end up being like our flying machines, but, you know, we can only demand so much from the man. Sure. One of the more interesting things, at least to me, is that he mentions ideas about multiplication of force with pulleys, which it becomes, you know, super important because later on with ships and everything pulleys and how you use those to lift heavy things became like a fundamental part of it. And he anticipated that because those weren't yet being used. Wow. He even had some, some very basic thoughts on diving suits. Not surprising. Everybody who gets everyone's into that. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone seems to be into the diving suits. They're like, how can we stay underwater without dying? <laughs> yeah, no, I was, I was looking at a 15th century, um, German, swordsman's manual and it has a thing about diving suits it's like was literally everyone just always in the back of their head wondering about diving suits how the fuck do we get down there yeah. <laughs> it's, it seems to be yeah, just a universal human thing yep so once uh, once bacon was in sort of the full flow of this experimental philosophy he didn't stop with mere mechanical devices he devoted a lot of his attention to optics, as we talked about, right. which had always been a subject that fascinated him. And here, his uh, his sort of inquiring mind came up with all sorts of possibilities. He began, one of his first sort of discussions is the idea of using mirrors and lenses so that one man might appear as many, one man might appear as an army, which he suggested that could, you could use it in war so that infinite terror may be cast upon a whole city or upon an army so that it will go entirely to pieces. So I don't think we've really gotten to the hologram army point in history yet, but Bacon thought it would be cool. Maybe not literally, but there is all that bloviation and propaganda with numbers and things. Um, yeah, just, oh, 
10,000 people, you know, um, are standing up against something. It's like, how did you count them? <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Fair. So he went on to describe optical devices that would come into use hundreds of years later. Um, and he described these as lenses are contrived so that the most distant objects appear near at hand and vice versa. We may read the smallest letters at an incredible distance. We may see objects, however small they may be, and we may cause the stars to appear wherever we wish. So it is thought Julius Caesar spied into Gaul from the seashore and by optical devices learned the position and arrangement of the camps and towns of Brittany. So it's cool that he's thinking about telescopes, but no one really knows where the Julius Caesar thing came from because I can concretely tell you Julius Caesar did not have a telescope and no one's really sure why Roger Bacon thought he had. Whatever Roger Bacon read that suggested that, we don't know what it was. Well, well, interesting. Hmm. What do you... Maybe Caesar did have a telescope. Hmm. 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 Anyway. Aliens um, or something. <laughs> yeah, pr probably. Probably aliens. So what is clear is that Bacon was the foremost expert on optics of his day. He understood, as very few had done before, how the primitive lenses and mirrors that they had at that time bent light rays, which that's the thing people ha didn't really get a concrete grasp of for a long time, is that light rays could be bent, and he did made some studies of that. And his studies were sort of picked up by uh, da Vinci hundreds of years later. It's unclear if da Vinci, you know, was directly using Bacon, but it seems like he very well might have been. Using Bacon. I know. I know it's so I know. funny sounding, sorry. So it's yeah. It seems oh, like Da Vinci get, was. Don't don't listen to him. He's on bacon. <laughs> <laughs> da Vinci was uh, definitely following his example in making telescopes and microscopes. But you know, when Bacon is writing, the first very primitive examples would not be made for literal hundreds of years afterward. That's incredible. Yeah, no, it is. And he also described potential astronomical devices which could be used to track the movements of stars and planets. Stuff which um really wasn't going to exist until the 1700s in many cases. He pretty accurately described how, what they would be like. That's uh, this, guy now, is know, on, this guy's this guy's on additional devices. Yeah, this guy's on another level. It's it's getting a little Swedenborgy here. Mhm. Mm and finally, and the most fun, Bacon was one of the first um people that far west to explore the manufacture of gunpowder and its potential use as a military explosive. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I'm not sure. He didn't think of using it as a propellant, ah. which is, of course, what eventually would be its most important use. He more have thought of it as something that could be put into some sort of case and launched and dropped to explode in the air and cause terror. As opposed to, you know, fire. So basically fireworks. fireworks. He thought yeah. about fireworks for the most part. Oh, that's so nice. And he, <laughs> and he, made, he did make gunpowder. He experimented with its manufacture. That's cool. Yep. Unfortunately, and this is the really big issue, Bacon doesn't really talk about experiments. We know, based on like what he said about Peter and other things, that he thinks experiments are really important, but he doesn't actually talk about doing them, so it's very hard to know what he himself actually experimented with versus what he could show theoretically to be feasible. And this is especially true with his work on optics, because his work is very, very detailed and technical, and here I put a little um, a little excerpt in here where he's talking about optics. 
the wonders of refracted vision are still greater, for it is easily shown by the rules stated above, which is where he talks about lenses, that very large objects can be made to appear very small, and the reverse, and distant objects will seem very close at hand, and conversely. And so, you know, he's he knows about refla refracted light and stuff, so he has a very complex understanding of these things, and it seems like, you know, he would have to have been experimenting in order to learn them, but he just doesn't talk about it. And here's Roger back, back on it again. For we can so shape transparent bodies and arrange them in such a way with respect to our sight and objects of vision that the rays will be refracted and bent in any direction that we desire, and under any angle we wish we shall see the object near or at a distance. Thus from an incredible distance we might read the smallest letters and number the grains of dust and sand owing to the magnitude of the angle under which we viewed them. So he's, he's, he's on some heavy stuff here about, you know, refraction and angles of light for magnification. I mean, like, he's he... talking about looking at sand. <laughs> it's amazing. And uh. so it seems like he had to have been, you know, really doing experimentation, but unfortunately he doesn't really talk about actually doing stuff. He talks about the ideas and the systems. But with this expertise, it really seems very possible that he may not only have described the microscope and the telescope, but also built some sort of primitive version of it during his 20 years of research into it. Wow. I mean, but if that's the case, why was it another 400 years before these devices were actually put to practical use? They have the cure for cancer right now. Was it the was it the corporations? Did they suppress Roger Barron's <laughs> microscope? It was Jeff Bezos all along. Every time. Ugh. Yep. So that that's where Bacon's at. And doing some amazing stuff, it seems. But unfortunately, Bacon's life and work got upended in the late twelve fifties. Oh no. And why did that happen? Because and this is probably not going to surprise anyone, the king had gotten very, very unpopular. This tends to happen, doesn't it? It does happen. It, it's yeah. it's kind of strange. And there were a couple reasons why this particular king, good old Henry, since remember, the country had been doing really well when Henry was too young to actually rule, and so the country was sort of ruled by these advisors. They'd done a great job, but once Henry was an adult, wasn't as good. And he stuffed his court and inner circle with relatives and friends of his who were French and annoying, and he sort of shut himself off from the actual English barons and leaders he should have been working with. Like, pretty much everyone in his inner circle were all French. What a dork. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, the English barons, who are, you know, the highest nobles in the country, aren't really thrilled with this, that the king is just sort of has this weird little French group around him. Yeah, that's very strange. Very yep. strange. He also racked up tons and tons of debts, as mm. kings tend to do, and had a number of military failures overseas. And so eventually the discontent finally erupted in April of 1258 when seven of the most powerful English barons secretly formed an alliance to expel the French nobles from the court. They all got together and were like, we need to get rid of these guys. Yep. And so on April 30th, the, the barons, actually, the seven of them, marched into Westminster in the middle of the king's parliament and announced that they were staging a coup. Man. <laughs> yeah, no, that was pretty, pretty hardcore. And Henry, who was terrified that he was about to be arrested in a prison since the seven most powerful nobles in the country are all there in front of him, agreed to abandon his personal rule as and instead govern through a council 
of 24 nobles and churchmen and officials, half of whom would be chosen by him and half by the barons. Because everyone figured when they had sort of this joint ruling thing of the group when he was a kid worked really well, so maybe if he rules with his council, it'll work well again. Well, it sounds like a decent policy. Yeah, yeah. But over the next few years, Henry and the barons were in constant political struggles over control of that council. Because remember, since he gets to choose some and they get to choose some, there's all this jockeying of, you know, trying to get people on the other side to sort of come over to your side, even though they were chosen by the by the other side. So then you have a majority and it's kind of a mess. Ugh. And the barons also are disagreeing and struggling with each other since they ranged very, very far in what they actually wanted. Some wanted total social reform, and the, and they wanted the power of the king and the nobles to be severely limited. Like, some of the barons actually wanted everyone's power reduced. Huh. And others wanted more or less, wanted things to be more or less the same, just with less Henry bullshit. Right. So the barons aren't really a unified front, because some actually want, like, real social reform, and others just want Henry to stop being weird. <laughs> That's yep. funny. And so there's a couple years of this, and things turned out as these things tend to turn out. And how is that, Aaron? Civil War. Civil War. And this was called the Second Baron's War, which is a cool name. That I... sounds like a great DLC for something. It does, doesn't it? That's funny. <laughs> and it just so happened that during this Second Baron's War, that Bacon's family were supporters of the king, not supporters of the barons. Hmm. But for the first long chunk of the war, the king was very much the losing side of the war and lost control of large parts of England, including Somerset. Uh-oh. And you can see where this is going. Yeah. Wealthy landowners who supported the opposite side tend not to stay wealthy landowners if this area gets taken. And sure enough, the Bacons lost their property and Roger lost the family piggy bank. Oh my god, no! So Bacon is sort of at a loss of what to do. Um, you know, he lost the support from his family that he relied on for, you know, spending literally the entire national GDP on books. And there weren't really people lining up to support him, mostly because, and this is something we haven't really had a chance to touch on, he had a reputation for being a jerk. Um, he was very aggressive in criticizing and denouncing other scholars and was also had a reputation as being kind of weird. Um, with his like some of his astrology and, and and alchemy stuff, and so nobody really was like, yeah, I'll I'll support this guy, probably because literally everyone had been insulted by him at one time or another. Wow. Yeah. So Bacon did what I think any of us would do in these circumstances, and he joined a religious order. Ah. Yeah, it's a good move. <laughs> around around 1257, he entered as a friar in the Franciscan order at Oxford. Whether or not his motives for doing so were trying to find a new means to support his work, or if he actually, like, had a religious vocation, we have no way of ascertaining. Um, you know, it does seem a little bit like a cynical move. It's like, oh, I'll become a monk, and then I'm not allowed to own property, and so someone else will pay for this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe it was sincere. I have no way of knowing. But, um, since the Franciscans were entirely based around the idea of holy poverty, they tended to not have a lot of money floating around, as mm, you can imagine. Yeah. But at that exact time, there were a couple of very well-known scholars in England who were Franciscans and whose work was supported by the order. So it's very possible that Roger may have been hoping for a similar deal. Well, we'll see. We will see, won't we? And in addition to this, there's another big benefit. 
books. You know, the things which Bacon had blown through so much money obtaining was something you could generally find in abundance in religious orders, since so much of the copying of manuscripts was done in monasteries, and learning was a pretty important aspect of just about all religious orders. Monasteries pretty much always had libraries, and they also even had a sort of proto-interlibrary loan system by which they could request and send books to other monasteries. So, yeah, getting access to that could have been a real big thing for, for Roger. And in addition, the Franciscans also had sort of a general spirit of discovery compared to other religious orders. Hmm. Uh, Later on in history, many explorers were accompanied by Franciscans, and a lot of Franciscans ended up doing natural science. So Franciscans always had sort of this connection to nature. And so it is possible that Roger really was actually not just being kind of cynical and trying to get someone to pay for his hobby, but actually was excited about it. But we don't know. I'd like to believe that he was excited about it. Okay, that, that's a will decide then. And so, this is the situation, and it seems like the order probably was a good home for Roger at first. But in 1260, that changed, because the order made a rule that prohibited friars from publishing books without having them go through an approval process first. Which does kind of make sense, since the order would have been the one paying for their research, And since the Order was supporting their work, if somebody really went off the rails with something weird, especially weird theology, it could end up being very bad for the whole Order that they, you know, paid for the production of some sort of weird cult book. Makes sense, yep. Yeah, like, it does make a certain amount of sense, but Roger, of course, is very taken aback by this, and he starts to look for some way to beat the system and get some sort of special deal worked out, because he doesn't want to have to go through an approval process to publish things. Not entirely clear why, because... Like, lots of people were publishing things, so it doesn't seem like the approval process was super hard to do, but Roger doesn't seem to have wanted to publish under it, and it's hard to say why. Maybe because he thought they would make him take out the mean things he says about other people. Yeah, probably that. (laughs) But yeah, so he's trying to find some sort of way to get a special deal. And this project leads him to try to contact a bishop named Guy de Folk, in 1264, and this Guy de Folk was the Pope's representative sent to England to try to get the king and the barons to sort things out. And so Roger thinks, you know, if anyone can, like, get some sort of deal worked out, it's going to be the Pope's representative. So he sends him a message, and unfortunately, Bacon's message kind of got messed up in transmission. It was supposed to give a sort of overview of his scientific studies and outline further research that would sort of bring it all together and show the first steps to putting some of the scientific ideas into practice. But what it actually ended up saying was that Bacon had already done all that. Um, huh. Obviously, Bishop Guy was really excited by this. It's like, oh, cool, this guy has basically figured out all of science. Right. Um, and he was probably pretty disappointed to realize the confusion and that Bacon hadn't actually figured out, you know, the secrets of the universe yet. But as it stood, with Bacon not able to get money from his family and... The order actually making him do physical work like all the other friars, which he was he, he mentions being very upset about that mm. and not letting him spend all day writing books like he'd hoped. Bacon wasn't really in a position to make the plan a reality and, you know, figure out all of science and write it down. So Bishop Guy is able to pull some strings to get Bacon a little bit more free time and freedom from oversight to work but nowhere near the support he would need in order to sort of do his project, which he basically wanted to write the Encyclopedia of Science, more or less. He wanted to sort of put everything he'd been thinking about together and sort of come up with, like, the rules of science. 
But he couldn't because he didn't have the money. It's like... Or the support required. I mean, it's it's almost like I want to cut in that song from... From, uh... Peanuts. You know, that little piano piece. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yep. yep. But, fortunately, this situation actually changed the very next year in 1265. Because... Oh. That very same bishop guy was elected Pope Clement IV. Oh. And so Bacon immediately writes him a little note about how this uh, new status might change the situation. Hint, hint. <laughs> yes. Since, yeah, it's, it's, it's nice when your pen pal becomes Pope. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wish I had that. <laughs> yeah. And so Pope Clement responded that he didn't want Bacon to be a dick to anyone or to violate any rules of his order but that he should compile, quote, writings and remedies for current conditions, which he would send to Rome for the Pope to read. After all, it wasn't publication if he was just sending them to one person, and that way the Pope didn't have to burn any bridges by, with the Franciscans by interfering in sort of an internal matter. But he also told him, and you, you don't, don't spread this around. Like, you yeah. know, I'll do what I can behind the scenes, but it's sort of bad for you to go over the head of your own order and for me to like tell them how they have to run things. Like you joined the order, man. Like yeah. you knew there were rules. <laughs> and so despite the, uh, the necessity of secrecy, Bacon was able to go all in on scientific research, um, including ignoring his other jobs, which he was frequently criticized for by the order. Cause he kind of just was like, Oh yep. Forgot, forgot to do it again. Yep. I'll get it next time. <laughs> And so in 1267, um, so only a little more than a year later, Bacon sent the Pope his Opus Maius, that is, larger work, which presented <laughs> his views on how to incorporate Aristotelian logic, which was, of course, what his original training was in, and science into theology. He also hmm. sent his Opus Minus, smaller work, um, a book called De Multiplicatione Specierum, the, On the Multiplication of Species, De Speculis, which is on mirrors. He sent him some sort of lens he'd rigged up and some other works, which were probably about astrology and alchemy. The entire process was referred by one historian, uh, was called by one historian, one of the most remarkable single efforts of literary productivity in history. Wow. Because Bacon composed works which total up at almost a million words in about a year. Oh my God, this man. Have, you know, obviously some, you know, I'm sure some of this stuff was already, you know, written down and he had to sort of compile and work it out, but just getting books accounting for a million words out in a year is really impressive. That is insane. Yeah, and his works covered pretty much every topic imaginable. Bacon wrote about the nature of knowledge, uh, the sources of error, the relation of matter and ideas, even hints of later atomic theory no. in terms of uh, in terms of what the sort of the smallest units of reality were. Um, yeah, it was it was all sorts of stuff. He also delved very deeply into the nature of light, since that was kind of his thing. And he considered light to be the highest form of science. And as part of that, he treated light and people's relationship to it, including a nice little discursus on eyeballs and eyeball nerves. Whoa. Uh oh. Yeah. Whoa. But he also started to get into some weird stuff in the realms of astrology and alchemy, which is kind of funny since so much of his early career involved like this whole science disproving magic thing and, you know, showing that uh, it's not actually magic. 
it's kind of funny then that his later life, he got so big brained that he sort of started believing that magic did exist, but that it was actually just some higher form of science he couldn't yet comprehend. We are reaching levels of Swedenborg that shouldn't even be possible. <laughs> yeah. And it, so it seems like things are going really well, right? Right. But unfortunately, Pope Clement only lived a couple years and died in 1268, probably before having ever gotten to read the giant stack of Bacon's writings. Because, you know, Bacon sent him literally a million words, and he's dead the next year, and he also, you know, has to be the Pope. So he probably didn't even get to read all that. Damn, that... I know. Oh, man. I know. And thus, Bacon lost one of the only people who actually liked him. Oh. Because, as I said earlier, Bacon was really not a super amiable guy. And since his realm of studies was, by contemporary standards, really niche and esoteric, he didn't really have the fame or following which can allow you to be a jerk without consequence. Like, if you're a really famous scholar, you can be a jerk and get away with it. But when you're not, you can't really do that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, here's one little tidbit, just sort of for um, giving an example of Bacon's being mean. So, in a public document, Bacon referred to an academic colleague as, quote, the most stupid author of these errors, the most renowned who had the greatest reputation in that entire stupid crowd. <laughs> and that was pretty par for the course of how Bacon referred to other scholars. So not a lot of friends. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I can see that affecting. Affecting yeah. relations. Exactly. And by 1271, the publication ban was over. So Bacon was able to able to be publishing stuff again. And so he published his Compendium Studii Philosophiae, so the Compendium of Philosophical Study, or rather, of the Study of Philosophy, which basically said that everyone was stupid except him. <laughs> and it, it singled out a lot of his fellow Franciscans and fellow academics for stinging criticism. So, Jeez. yeah, Bacon's kind of... Yeah... He's not setting himself up for a lot of success. He's just a little too woke, isn't he? <laughs> he is a little too woke, yeah. Oh, and man. so in 1277, there was this big conference at the University of Paris, which officially condemned a number of ideas as being wrong, many of which were related to the practice of astrology, particularly deterministic astrology, the idea that the stars are going to, in some way, make something necessarily going to happen. Literally, 1277, we figured out that that was bullshit. 2020, go on Facebook. People still don't realize that. Sure. Um, yeah, so deterministic astrology. Literally, still still going on, even though they tried to stop it in 1277. It will never go away. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But someone or other must have noticed that some of the condemned ideas were sort of like the stuff Roger Bacon was writing, and since literally no one liked him, no one was going to stand up and be like, oh, no, no, you know, he's fine. And since pretty much everyone had been personally attacked by him, he didn't exactly have any defenders. So, yeah, it was not looking good for him. Um, and so with the demand of, well, probably a lot of people, to be honest, both inside and outside the Franciscan order, the minister general of the Franciscan order put him under some sort of... Um, punishment. It's, we don't have references to this until almost a century after his death, so it's it's even sketchier than a lot of our biographical detail about what actually happened, but it's sort of generally assumed he was put under some sort of, like, 
house arrest and not allowed to like teach outside a monastery or publish things outside the monastery. And as I said, yeah, the sources for this are really sketchy. So it's hard to say what exactly happened in terms of how severe this actually was. If he was actually prevented from doing things or if he was just kind of given a warning, we really don't know because the only first reference we have is almost a hundred years later um, to this happening. Well, and he doesn't exactly seem like the kind of guy where it would be unheard of for him to pretty frequently be getting, you know, slaps on the wrist. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Yeah. I know what you're saying. It's he uh, he, he's so big brained, but it's not that that gets him. It's it's. the Yeah, no, that that is literally true. And in addition to the astrology stuff, Bacon had also kind of gotten into some weird end times antichrist stuff mm. and was starting to get very into like contemporary prophecies and radical like end of the world type cults. Mm. And yeah, so he's he's kind of going off the rails a little bit. Yeah, maybe maybe get getting a little bit uh Joseph Seed on us here. A little bit, yeah. And so in any case, what I think we can say and what I think is reasonable to say is that Whatever happened, he wasn't being punished for doing science, but rather probably was being punished for being a jerk and maybe for involvement with weird culty stuff. Which makes you wonder, you know, what would have happened if he just hadn't been that way and had been better at having friends? Would his ideas have actually, like, taken root more? Yeah, I mean, it it really does come down to this this is a nice picture of intelligence not being the highest value. Or even Mm -hmm. the most useful value, uh, unless it's tempered with humility of some kind. Yeah. So sometime after 1268, probably around there, the punishment, whatever it was, was removed, and he returned to the Franciscan house at Oxford and continued his studies. And unfortunately, we have very, very little to go on for the later parts of his life, because most of the details we do have are references he makes in all those books he wrote for the Pope. So once you get beyond that, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's very, very hard to uh, to make any actual yeah details. So not great. Oh, also, sorry, I meant not 1268, 1288 um, is oh, okay. when the punishment is removed. Gotcha. And so, yeah, or sometime around there, as I said, it's it's very hard to know. But we do know that the last book that he wrote that is datable, is published in 1292, which is the Compendium Studii Theologiae, so the Compendium of Theological Studies, which was really just a sort of reorganization of material from that massive pile of writings he did for the Pope in the 1260s. It wasn't really anything new. It was kind of just uh, cleaning up some of that stuff. And that was published in 1292, and after that, we have no more information about Roger Bacon. At that point, um, if we're assuming the uh, the 1214 birth year, that would make him 78. So that's a pretty that's a pretty very respectable age for the 13th century. So it's probably safe to assume that he died soon after. And we do know that later he was buried at Oxford. We just don't know the year he actually died. And in the centuries after his death, um, the less great aspects of Bacon, unfortunately, became the things that people associated with him. Mm. And in England, he actually became a sort of fairy tale character who appeared in stories and songs as a wizard. (laughs) And people kind of forgot about the science stuff he did. And he ends up just in the popular imagination as sort of a uh, a stereotypical wizard. Well, that's fine. I mean, (laughs) a mean wizard in his tower. 
mean. Yeah, no, exactly. Which is sad since he did so much real valid stuff that it was the stuff he did, which was not great, which is what he was remembered for. And people didn't really pay attention to the, the stuff he had done. And it wasn't for a very long time that his extremely advanced scientific work was properly appreciated since so much of it was really buried in his very aggressive polemic against other people and in his very esoteric weird stuff. So, you know, one has to wonder if Pope Clement had lived a few years longer and had gotten to read Bacon's work and had used his ideas to reform education and introduced, you know, some of his scientific stuff into curriculum. It's like, you know, who knows where we would be? We might have Mars colonies right now if Roger Bacon <laughs> could just stop calling people names. And, you know, that that I'm ready to bring the story to a close with that. What do you think, Aaron? Well, I think... Uh, do you have any thoughts on of questions course, or anything? Of course I do. Um, but I don't want to... I, I Honestly, I'm, I'm very, very tired, so I don't want to, like, ask stupid questions and then not be able to discuss them but i think the main thing that i got out of this is just sort of a, a reinforcement that intelligence is not a measure of uh it's not a measure of essentially practical value uh you can be really really smart and end up living in the woods um you know and never talking to anybody again and you can think you're really cool and really smart for doing that uh, and I get it, I get that point of view, but at the same time, it's like, well, if you can't help people with your intelligence, all it is is, is a curse. It just gets you stuck, and you're like, well, I'll solve this problem next, and then, and then you're too stupid to see it. When somebody offers any, you know, criticism at all, you just call them stupid. Um, it's sort of an extreme narcissism that comes out of, um, a decision point. Like, I mean, when when you're researching something, you will get to a point where you're like, am I going to be, like, an asshole about this and just, like, start telling people how stupid they are because they can't get on my level? Or am I just going to, like, pull a Tolstoy and just... Or not Tolstoy. Was it Tolstoy? Uh, God, I'm so out of it. Well, that's what Tolstoy did at the end of his life. He just went out and lived a humble life in a hut. <laughs> that that is that is true out in the country. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I really think there is a decision point when you're when you're a person you might say blessed with high intelligence. It's you know, some of the biggest assholes in the world. Like Bobby Fisher was obviously a genius, but he was also kind of a dick, and so people stopped listening to him after a while. And then he just like ended up in Japan under arrest or some shit. I don't remember. Bobby Fisher might be the first alien we covered on the show. <laughs> He is a, he's a confusing one, that's for sure. Yeah, he's all over the fucking place. Um, but yeah, I started, I remember when I wrote that episode, I was like, how about I just pretend he was an alien from the beginning? <laughs> and then just... Then it makes more sense. Yeah, it actually makes it, makes more sense. Okay, well, I need to get to bed, so it's time for us to head to the surface. Uh, all right, goodbye, Roger the Baconator. Goodbye, Baconator. You were delicious. So, Aaron, how does it feel to be a working man now? It's uh, very tiring, but it feels very, very good to do things with my hands with big machines that beep a lot, and uh, as opposed to little machines that suck you into the black mirror and make you feel like you want to die every day. How? So, are you sure you don't miss sitting around in a lame city apartment being sad all day? Well, you tell us. How is it sitting in a lame city apartment and being sad all day?
I just came here to have have a good time and I feel attacked right now. I uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, you know, it's sad and it's it's lame. Um, and it's in a city, but you know, it it could be worse. It definitely it could be worse. It definitely could be. I mean, I know some people who are in cities right now who feel like it's all over, and it's just like, nah, just just get out of there. Yep. There was a um, there was an incident of armed robbery and disorder with a weapon on the corner that I live this week. Oh, um, that's nice. So that's good. Um, yeah. So no, it's about 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 par for the course, I think. Well, I saw a fox the other day. So that wow, was, that was cool. Imagine seeing nature. Oh. Man, you got literally the only nature I see is like really fat squirrels <laughs> <laughs> to remind me that there is life outside of these walls. And it's contained in a couple of fat squirrels. I knew a guy who came from the south where this or not the south somewhere. I don't remember where where the squirrels were smaller than they are in the Midwest. And he saw a squirrel sitting on a tree and he said he thought it was literally a dog in a tree because it was so big and fluffy. Amazing. You remember when my roommate stole my blowgun to try to shoot squirrels in college with the, the darts? Yeah, I remember that. Why did you have a blowgun? Didn't we buy it at the flea market? Oh, that's right. We I, did. <laughs> I yeah. think we bought it at the flea market. Yeah, we bought some weird shit at the flea market, but... Um, legendary times. Legendary. Well, on that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. We use Patreon as a support platform, not a purchase platform. So if you like what we're doing, throw money our way, but you're not, like, paying us to keep making episodes. It's just not how it works. Just thought I'd make that clear. A lot of people are using the Venmo tip jar, which is really cool. Uh, anything is appreciated, and again, it's that's, a, that's sort of like the tithe. <laughs> we're passing the plate. And you can send us a uh, little tip at at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all of that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of James doing science play you out. Hold this, Kurt. <laughs> Weird. Behold the atheist's nightmare. Okay. Now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side there are three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. Whoa. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side... There are three grooves on the close side, two grooves. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. I don't like how, the, how you said that, but sure. You'll find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. <laughs> it has outward indicators of inward contents. Green, too early. Yellow, just right. Black, too late. All right. Now, if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find, as with the soda can makers, they placed a tab at the top, oh, so God has my. placed a tab at the top. <laughs> when you pull the tab, the contents don't squirt in your face. Where are we going? You'll find a wrapper which is biodegradable, has perforations. Notice how gracefully it sits over the human hand. We are living in the future, my friend. Notice it has a point at the top for ease of entry. It's just the right shape for the human mouth. Oh, good day, Mr. Edison. It's chewy, easy to digest, and it's even curved toward the face to make the whole process so much easier. I'm just saying, yeah, no, it, it's a great system. Seriously, Kurt, the whole of creation testifies to the genius of God's creative hand. Oh, did he invent the hammer? You're the creator, I'm just the dick who inspired Hitler. <laughs> <laughs>